You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. All right. Our guest today on Datages is Sean Collinson. Sean is joining us for a continuation of the discussion of this last Datage we covered, which is To Thine Own Self Be True. I think that it's great to have Sean joining us today. And there's a little bit of a story behind this, which is that, as I told you in the last episode, listeners, that was not the episode I had planned for episode five. It was sort of a last minute change to thine own self be true. And I don't believe in coincidence anymore in my life. I only believe in providence. And I think it was definitely a moment of providence because I'd been speaking with Sean about joining the program and I had another topic in mind for him and it just felt like it was a little bit forced. And when this topic came up and Sean and I started talking about it, it really was just a great fit. And I think you'll, after listening to today's interview, understand why I'm so excited that Sean is able to join us. So Sean, welcome to Datages. And I asked you to come on Datages, not only because you're a really dynamic individual with a wide array of experiences, you know, having been a hip hop artist out of Brooklyn and being one of the top mediators in the country and now being a best-selling author, but in the midst of it all, most importantly, you're a great dad and someone that I've looked to for advice in my adult life and someone who's become a great friend and advisor to me. But one of the key reasons that I really wanted to bring you on Datages today is because I was moved so much when I listened to your audiobook, The Whiteout, and heard the story of your near-death experience this past year that you detailed in the book. And how it sort of served as an awakening for you uh, and gave you a message to deliver and a mission to deliver it to as many people as you could. And I'll come back to that in a few minutes. But first, I want to give people the opportunity to get to know you a bit better. So welcome. Welcome, Sean. Thanks, Chad. Thanks for having me on today. Looking forward to our chat. Yeah. So, Sean, you know, maybe we can go back to the beginning and you can help our listeners get to know you a little bit better you know, your origin story, as they say in superhero speak. Right. The origin story, the elevator pitch. So glad to be here for everyone listening. So really, my story is basic, man. From Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, New York, my mother had me at 14 years old, and my father got shot in the head about six weeks later. So I never met my dad. So, you know, being from a rough area in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, New York, growing up on Halsey Street, you know, it seems like, you know, some kids are truly born with the odds against them. But oftentimes, 
the plan that we have is not the plan that potentially God has, if you want to say God or the universe or whatever the plan is, right? So I think ultimately growing up in Brooklyn, fast forward you then to around 16, 17, I get into hip hop, Kid Flash, Hot Like Fire is my first duet album on uh, CBS Taboo Records with Clarence Avant, the godfather of the business. So I, I seem to, you know, I strike a little oil there. And, you know, to be a kid coming out of Brooklyn, I feel like better lucky than good. It's like my golf game. <laughs> you know, if I hit it right down the middle, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is pretty good. Well, it may be better lucky than good, but it's even better to be both, right? Yeah, better to be both. And then so I get this record deal. And here I am, this uh, misfit from Brooklyn. And back then, everyone's a misfit in Brooklyn. So, you know, I come off, start doing some rap songs and, you know, meeting all the hotties and being on tour. And uh, hip hop teaches me business. It actually teaches me about, you know, really how you maneuver with business. The The way I learned business was I took the quarter of a million dollar advance and flushed it right down the toilet. <laughs> so I learned, I learned exactly how not to do business that way anymore. One of my best friends used to refer to that as mistake your way to growth. Yes, I, I figured out I came with nothing and I'm going to leave with nothing. So I thought maybe by the time I'm 19, if I can get rid of this quarter of a million before anyone finds out I have it, I'm doing well. So that was the story of that. And I continued out of New York, came into Los Angeles. I did some work still as a rap artist. I did some American Gladiators. I started, you know, doing doing things. And I was just doing shit that just like, it's like, how does this dude from Brooklyn from Halsey Street, Bethesda Stuyvesant, you know, he's the one. And so I started realizing, like, people will count you out. But what happens if God counts you in? So fast forward up to 26, I kind of, you know, I'm exiting the music career. And um, I, I'm on American Gladiators. I'm in Hollywood at Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. And I meet this gal. We end up getting together. Eight months later, I'm walking down the aisle. She's pregnant and uh, I'm getting married. It felt like a dream because I was figuring like, you know, what am I doing here? Like right out of Brooklyn, right off a tour to a wedding. Like what part of the plan is that? I guess some of us choose to be a dad and others have being a dad chosen for us. Yes, it was chosen for me. And so I, you know, we have a, we have a child, but two years later, we end up, you know, going through some tough times, still go with the kid. And then we get back together and I end up with another kid. So, you know, so now I have two kids and now I'm going through it again. So two years married. And then just to keep it, you know, fully transparent, that's how it went. So I'm married two years, but I'm in court for four. I should have got a BA for being in family court for four years. I actually got a BS because it was... It was bullshit. <laughs> Long story short, we meet a mediator. And this guy, you know, comes out of nowhere four years later. I'm looking at him like, hey, I don't know what you can do for me. I am on a path of destruction. And he says, Sean, what are your interests and concerns, man? 
And I started thinking, well, that's different because no one gave a hoot about what I cared about. And so he, you know, got into this thing. And so I realized I had the epiphany. You're being blessed and a higher power is functioning that is beyond any mortal thinking you have. I'm being shown who I'm going to be in the future. But when that football comes my way, it's either going to hit me in the head and bounce off into the sidelines, or I have to catch it like Aaron Rodgers with three seconds to go and throw it up, baby, and I get it. I caught the ball. Fast forward now 20 years. I'm America's mediator. I now am remarried. I got double, triple, quadruple X for all my trouble. And what I've learned throughout the entire process is instead of letting your ego drive you and being totally crazy, is you want to make amends. You want to create peace. And I was on a show, I was on this TV show, and the psychologist was with me and she was very fancy and big time. And I'm, you know, again, I'm somehow always end up the smallest guy on a totem pole everywhere I go. But the news anchor was like, hey, Sean, what do you think about making amends and apologizing? Aren't they the same thing? And I'm looking at her like, no, they're not. And then the psychologist goes, yes, they are. And I go, no, they're not. And so I know she's looking at me like, well, where's your degree? And I'm like, hey, I went to school. I didn't go to DeVry at night, but I know that those two things are not the same. She goes, well, what's your evidence? I said, well, when you apologize for shit you're doing, those are only words when you say you're sorry and you apologize. And then I said, and when you make amends, it's an action. It's a verb. It's something you do. You correct your BS, your bullshit you're doing. And she was like, hey, that's really good. And then the psychologist kind of, Sean, I, I, you know what? I stand corrected. And I'm like, yeah, that DeVry night school worked out. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, I, I like that story. One of the things that I often say is having gotten where I am in my life, probably four of the words in the English language that I value the least, and this may sound odd, but it's, it's really, I stand by it, is thank you and I'm sorry. Those are phrases that we all accept as courtesy, but to me, it's not courtesy, it's laziness. Just using the words doesn't mean anything. And I think that's what you're saying about, I'm sorry. If you don't take the actions to follow through and show somebody that you truly feel remorse about something you did or something that happened and really make it up to them, you really haven't done anything. I think practicing gratitude and, as you said, making amends mean a lot more than saying thank you and saying I'm sorry. Absolutely. When you make amends, you go in. The really good thing that I don't think people realize about making amends is there's some intrinsic value there. And you end up paying it forward for a little down the line. So everyone makes mistakes. But if you can truly make amends, you correct that behavior. Now, moving forward, you're the recipient of the intrinsic value and things start to blossom for you. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You are an amazing storyteller. And I think that's one of the things that I enjoyed the most about listening to your audiobook, The Whiteout. And we're going to put a link to the book on our bulletin board page so that our, our listeners can find it. 
there are three stories that I thought were amazing in your book. One is the story of the accident itself. When you're on that motorcycle and you got hit by that driver who is DWI and on meth and driving under the influence. And then the story you told about the gratitude you have for the care you received after the accident is amazing and powerful as well. And then the third story is the story you tell about being in the courtroom mm-hmm. and going back and facing the perpetrator, this person that nearly ended your life, right. but created this experience for you. And as I said, I don't want you to tell any of those stories here today because they're told so well in your book that I want our listeners to go listen to it and have the experience that I did. Because as I told you last week when we talked on the phone leading up to this interview, it truly brought a tear to my eye. Right? I, When I was listening to the book, it touched me emotionally and it was so powerful. And so I I want our listeners to have that experience for themselves. What I do want to do is I'm going to go back. I want to go back to the beginning because obviously we're here. Mm -hmm. This is datages. We're talking about relationships between fathers and their children, passing on wisdom. You said your father was the victim of gun violence and didn't survive beyond your sixth week of life. Mm -hmm you were left without a father. How and when did you realize that there was a piece missing for you and your life when you were growing up? I don't know if I ever realized something I didn't have, right? I had no knowing. So with the streets, sometimes often being the teacher, ultimately my grandmother is the pillar in the group. My mom is too young, but my mom was responsible. She worked and my grandmother would hold it down at home. And my grandmother really raised us. The person that, you know, if I needed some kids at school to get whooped for, you know, giving me a hard time or bullying me, my grandmother would go after them. (laughs) And so. So so grandma was tough. Oh man. You, you, You know, no matter what I did, she took my side. And then my dad Basically, at that time, there was no mention really of my mom was just too young. He just, you know, just like most inner city minority children, you know, there's problems or stuff in the home. He, he, you know, maybe, you know, he didn't cause his death, you know, because he got shot in the head in a liquor store at a gas station. You know, God rest his soul for whatever, you know, time he had on the earth. But I never thought about it. It resonates with me now that I'm a father actually to a son. It didn't even happen with my daughters as much. My daughters are now 28 and 26. But the son, that component, it resonates with me because we have like this you know, we have a brotherly love and dad love too. And, you know, I'm dad and being in the home and with him every single day, we have this bond that's inseparable and it's just committed to love and support and being there for him. And you have to be able to be able to see beyond yourself. That doesn't happen till I get the sun. Daughters, I'm a mess. I'm trying to figure it out. So interestingly, it sounds like you've learned to be a dad by being a dad. Yeah. Even though the, it sounds like the strongest male role model you had in your youth was your grandmother. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But there had to have been male figures along the way 
that helped you learn what it meant to be a man? Who were who were those those mentors earlier in your life that gave you that example? I don't have one. I don't have one. The the, the person, no one taught me to be a man. That was on the job training. I did horribly in my freshman trial. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm failure to launch. Well, let's explore that then, because I think that's really fascinating to me. And I'm, you know, an amateur student of psychology, but one of the raging debates in human development is the concept of nature versus nurture. And do you believe that perhaps you just had ingrained in you from birth the blueprint? of how to be a man. And sure, you had to mistake your way through that and get to that point. But since you didn't have a male role model, do you think there was something innate about Sean Collinson that gave you that blueprint? I think the only thing that dawns on me is whatever people said I was, I had zero attachment. So if they said I was horrible, I didn't attach. If they said I was good, I didn't attach. So my ego was contained. And all I knew is I'm from Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, New York. I'm definitely a little different because I'm from Brooklyn and everyone else is from everywhere else in the world. And us kids, we had a clique of four friends. We all lived in brownstones next to each other. And all I could remember back is when I get to Hollywood, I'm the kid from Brooklyn. And I am thinking like, this is Los Angeles. Hollywood is, it seems really cool. And I'm counting my blessings because if it doesn't work out, my consequence is back to Brooklyn. So now things switch. At some point, a light bulb goes off in my head about even making amends, even coming out with a chip on my shoulder that this person has more than this person. I never looked at it that way. And I always believe that there's a higher power to everything that we do. And if I don't get involved majoring in the minor, I'll be better lucky than good. I want to go back to something you said just a moment ago, because I, I find it really fascinating. And I think I'm, I have some my own insight to share that, that might just blow your mind. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so you were talking about this ability you had to divorce yourself from the labels that people tried to attach to you. Mm-hmm. And- in this episode of Dadages, one of the things that I talk about is my time at the Chopra Institute and these lessons that I learned about how trauma in our youth can create labels and stories that we say about ourselves. And what I didn't go into detail about is that a lot of that trauma and those labels that can be most damaging to us come from the relationships with our own parents, from our family of origin. Mm-hmm. And the thought I was having when you were telling your story is because you had a father that wasn't in your life at all, because you have a mother that really took a back seat to your grandmother, who was the, the strong force in raising you, you actually didn't have those parental units in your life that could do that same kind of damage to you by labeling you as, mm. oh, you're the bad kid. You're the mm-hmm. quiet kid. You're the disobedient kid. Not, you didn't have parents to give you those labels to sink into your heart and define you as a person. Mm. So you made your own labels as you went ar- along. That's powerful. Yeah, you just enlightened me. I thank you and I am blown away by that. Right. I never got any labels because no one talked to us. <laughs> 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 it was like, go to school, 
Do your homework. Sean Collinson's rule of parenting number yeah. one, silence is golden. Ah, it definitely, right. No one labeled me anything. I got to high school and then realized that, you know, some of the kids were really mean, but by then I was ingrained with, you know, these people don't control any destiny or anything like that. They had printed in the yearbook, they had a group and a couple of my guys were in the group and it said most unlikely to succeed. <laughs> so I ended up yeah. in the most unlikely to succeed category. <laughs> and I'm like, Hey, if you're going to put me in a category, then give me some shit for being in it. Like, do I get a trophy? Like, what do you get for this? And fast forward again, I end up helping all of those people that dumped on me later on with baby daddy, baby mama drama cases. And clearly, again, I pay it forward because I didn't believe that. I was just like, all right, you, you have a right to whatever you want to say. I should not be offended. Because you say something that is totally unaligned with where I'm going. I, I, I don't know where I'm going, but I know what you just said does not equal the unknown. So you're not the X factor. And I would contend that the ability to come back and have a positive influence on somebody's life who seemingly wrote you off is better than any trophy anyone could have offered oh, you. It was so good. So good. So I, I've done that many, many times. And now with social media, these people can find you. And so when they, you know, see me on Dr. Phil or they see me on TV on the news or some commentary that I'm doing, they're automatically thinking like, holy cow, he's the guy. <laughs> he's the <laughs> he's the Sean's the guy. And then my mom always says, Who knew? <laughs> who knew who, who knew like like they'd want you to be the one telling this story but then again you got to remember their plan for you is not your plan well and let's talk about that some of those lessons and and i'm taking this from your book because i i found these words really meaningful you spoke about developing a sense of smart habiting and yeah. you used three words that I thought were really powerful. And I'd like to explore those words here and have you kind of explain your perspective on them. You talked about the mindset of discipline, commitment, and focus. You want to talk about that so that our listeners can understand what that means to you and, and how you embody that? Yeah. So the smart habiting started to ingrain as a daily practice of doing things that were you know, putting you in a position to sort of recalibrate. And oftentimes we can, and I'm, gonna, I'm in advancing this concept because it, it grew. Oftentimes you can get stuck in a rut as a parent, as an employer, as an employee. There's all these things, you know, life can become mundane. At some point when, you know, you get like, in my case, I'll use my situation as an author as an example, when I write four books, it took a tremendous amount of discipline, which led to focus. And in order to even have the discipline and the focus I had to have, I had to be committed. So I committed myself and I had this conversation with myself about what it's going to take. Once I was able to 
have that covenant of, you know, focus and commitment with myself, the only way I could stay in that lane was through discipline. It was nights I couldn't think of anything. There were days I didn't have anything to write. And I had to say to myself, the deal was I wouldn't give up. And that I was going to push through. So I continued almost every day. And when I was writing the books that I would push through four books later, and now I can say that I did that, it is only from the smart habiting because the discipline, the commitment, and the focus is exactly what it took to get through it. I had the book. Everyone has a story inside of them. No one on this planet does not have a story. Every story may be unique. There will be no certain DNA to my story, to your story. We will all have a book. The difference maker will be, do you have the discipline, the commitment, and the focus to tell your story? And one guy said it best. He said, the best stories are where? And I said, you know, I said Barnes and Noble (laughs) because I wrote four books. He said, no, they're in the cemetery because a lot of people died with their stories. My observation is that your entire life is based around thoughtful strategy, patience, discipline, building a plan, being very patient in the execution of that plan, sometimes waiting out your opponent in a negotiation. And all of that thoughtful strategy and that patience then balanced with this near-death experience you had and this exposure you had to the whiteout and what you referred to as the nanosecond, that instant when you realized that tomorrow is not promised to anyone. How do you reconcile that? How do you, as a disciplined individual, focusing on these big picture strategic negotiations and executions and everything you have to go through in, in your professional life, How do you balance that with this notion that the tomorrow I'm planning for may not ever come? I have one simple answer to that. Live life to the fullest. Live your best life now. It is not a coincidence that you are wherever you are. If your eyes are open, you can change your circumstances. You can move into a different light. But there's no dress rehearsal. This is when Michael Jackson said this is it, he was he was spot on. Today, when I woke up, my publicist called me and she said she was having a tough morning. She's in Florida. I'm in LA. And she said just she told me, you know, all these, you know, challenges. And I just said, you know what? I'll make a deal with you today. How about we live today in gratitude? How about every person we meet, we lift up? Tell them something nice. Your hair looks great. They might have gotten their hair done in three, three years. Your hair looks great. You, your smile is beautiful. How are you doing? Let's check in. And I said, let's make this covenant all day. And she said, just by me, asking her to change her mindset today, she had instantly gotten out of her funk. Life is short. We don't know the number. 
but you do have an option to live your best life now. That day when I almost died on the motorcycle, I was in the house. My son was here. My mom was here. I grabbed my motorcycle helmet. I hadn't ridden the bike for a year and a half, almost two years. I jumped on the bike and I said, hey, my wife said, where are you going? I said, I'm just going to grab some gas in the bike real quick. And she was like, well, you haven't even ridden a bike in a while. I'm like, yeah, I'll just go grab some gas. I threw on my helmet, my jacket with the spine protector, and no one knew that could be the last time they would see me. And a few minutes later, when I came through after I got hit, and the lady, a lady grabbed me out of the middle of the street, busy intersection, and she pulls me to the side. And the paramedics showed up, and I was in bad shape because the leg was gone. I wasn't able to walk. And um, he was trying to, you know, the paramedic I had on the helmet, he was trying to keep me coherent. And he was asking me questions, you know, talking to you. He says, hey, where's your phone? I'm like, oh, and, you know, he's trying to keep me alert. So I had my phone, and I pulled out my phone. And he said, you know, do uh, you have any emergency contacts? I said, yeah. I said, well, let me, let me call my wife. So I had just left the house. My mom's there and my son. So I called my wife, went to voicemail. Here I am dying on a street corner and <laughs> she sends me to voicemail. So, so I'm like, all right. So I go, all right. He goes, I go, he says, want to try again? So I tried again. Boom, voicemail. I'm like, well, all right, that's weird. So then I call my mom thinking, hey, my mom's going to pick up. She sent me to voicemail. I'm like, bro, so I'm super coherent. Cause I'm like, wait a minute. I'm in the middle of, I'm transcending from life to death and no one wants to say goodbye. So I call my mom again, voicemail. I'm like, dude, I can't get on my phone. So my stepdad, I have a stepdad. I called his phone. I went to voicemail. I'm thinking it's got to be the area. I keep going to voicemail. So he says, anyone else you could think of calling it might answer. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, dude, you were sustained by frustration and loneliness in yeah. your moment of abandonment. Yeah. It's like, bro. So I had some favorites because I had just gotten this new iPhone and I called Master P and uh, I hit Master P and it went calling and it went and I was on a speakerphone. I'm in the ambulance going cold. Master P asked the phone, what's up, homie? <laughs> I'm like, yo, P, you're not going to believe this. So me and P end up having a conversation about, you know, I just got it. He's like, where you at? I'm on my way, man. Wait, yo, what hospital are you going to? And uh, P stayed on the phone with me all the way through the emergency room and everything. So the moral of the story is always have Master P on speed dial because when everyone else in your life abandons you, Master P is there for Master you. Master P picked up the phone. If I was, I didn't, but it had I had died that day, and as crazy as it sounds, the last human voice that I contact is Master P. There's a reason he's a master. Yeah, Master P was the guy. Talked to me through the whole time. While I was at the hospital. So, Sean, as I listen to these stories that you have to tell since the beginning, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, your time as Kid Flash, uh, you know, your time as a mediator and the things you've seen, the arguments you've been a part of, the family drama, uh, your own experiences as an adult, and then obviously 
you know, continue with the story of a near death experience. One of the things as a father that I struggle with, and I really want to get your insights on this because I think you probably have a really interesting perspective is when you have these incredible experiences in your life, how do you share those with your kids? How do you know when your children are ready to hear these incredible stories? And how do you know when they're ready to learn from and grow from your experiences? How do you convey all of that to your kids? When do you know it's the right time and how to tell them these kinds of stories and share the wisdom you've picked up? Yeah, it's definite, definitely an age-appropriate communication. and. As he he's never been to Brooklyn. Grayson's never been to Brooklyn. He's never ridden the subway or anything. So I gotta get him to do that. Then maybe when we're sitting on the subway, I'll explain to him. Like, you know, I used to sleep on it. No, I'm just, <laughs> well, you know, I'll explain it to him. So I'll explain these stories to him at an age appropriate. Maybe one day he and I, when he's 21, will be in Vegas doing this, you know, Vegas run. And I'll, you know, we'll have a beer maybe. And I'll tell him, you know, where his dad really came from. I think when he can really appreciate the story and grasp it, like, wow, wow, man, what you did with me and your story, and he can relate and it's relatability. I want that. I really want that aha moment where he's like, yeah, let's get another beer to that, you know, or he's just like with his girlfriend and I'm telling him that, you know, I'm, I'm a gangster. You know, and they're like, whoa, this guy's, this guy's a gangster. <laughs> they're not ready for yeah, you. You know, be like, hey, I'm packing right now. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Exactly. Well, I'm glad we're doing this interview virtually then. I might be intimidated. Yeah, I want to tell him one day that, you know, you know, when he has a son and everything, I want to, you know, set the example, but, but I know I am right. We're on point. We, 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 we run a tight ship over here. Uh, the guy is, you know, pretty good with getting A's and he's in the fourth grade. He's doing amazing. He just tested for a second degree black belt with a 15 and a 16 year old. My daughter's a speech pathologist. The other one's on her way to be an attorney and she's dabbling in a lot of different areas. So I feel like ultimately, yeah, I didn't have a dad when I grew up. My grandmother was the rock, but I do sometimes sense like my dad was always watching out for me. And that day that that DUI driver high on meth out of his brain on cocaine almost takes me away from these kids. My dad stepped in and said, and God says, not, not, not yet. I need him to be here a few more years. I'm just living every day in gratitude that you know, I'm here and I get to hang out with Grayson and the girls. And it's really a unique feeling when you almost lose it and you get it back. And so now every day, it's kind of like, let's live in gratitude, push it forward, be kind. And hey, there's no such thing as a bad day. Every day, your eyes open, the rest is up to you. Absolutely. Now, there's something that you confessed to me, Sean, when we were getting ready for this interview. And you said that even though you had that epiphany and you had that moment, that nanosecond, and you came back from it with the sense that you now have a mission and you have a responsibility to deliver a message 
uh, to the people in your life, you said that it's still a struggle for you, that you feel like you're running away from it, that other things in your life are pulling you in a different direction, but you keep finding yourself pulled back to that message. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about Mm -hmm. that and share that with our listeners? Yeah, I've done it. I am uh, definitely guilty of running from success. I did it again this week because I did commit that I was going to do the whiteout book tour. I was going to, even though I sold a tremendous amount of books and everything that I was going to, you know, I made a covenant that, you know, I'm here to explain to people about tomorrow's not guaranteed. And then the next project was that. And then I instead did the master class on family court. And so it may be something that I've now reconciled in my own brain that I don't need to be afraid of anything. And I think that everything happens in its own timing and that I'm okay with that. I'm going to keep embracing the fact that, you know, the only reason I'm here is because God had a higher purpose for me. And I'm But Sean, what I hear in everything you're saying, even though you have competing objectives, competing opportunities, competing forces in your life, I hear a real sense of center. And I hear that all of that is part of you and that you truly are living your message. You're being true to yourself. And to me, that's what matters. Yeah. And I take it into one of the things I make it out to be is, and I say this almost every day, I'm living my best life now. So I I understand the dichotomy of why it happened and why I need to really tell the story and get there. But I think that God's timing is everything. And even though I keep putting the burden on myself that I'm going to do a book tour and I'm going to be on TED Talks and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, God is saying, hey, just bring it down. The right time will come. And that's how I'm writing, man. And until then, I'll continue to just keep raising Grayson making sure Grayson's good. He said he might go for the third degree black belt or take jujitsu. Now he's in a basketball league. He's a great kid. I think out of everything I like doing, I love being a dad. That's awesome. Let's actually uh, wind down with that topic. Let's focus on on that for a moment because this is dadages after all. Let's talk about you being a dad. You've obviously done a fantastic job. You've learned on the job to be a dad. What do you think is your sort of go-to piece of advice? Your your wisdom, if there's one thing you lean on that you share with your children over and over again that you think has had the biggest impact on them, what's that one thing? Never quit and always just give your best effort. I love you regardless. Go out there, have fun, get it done, and do your best. And Grayson does that. He'll challenge himself, no real pressure. He seems to come in with like a good, you know, let's say 4.0 was in super A+. He hovers about a 3.8, 3.9. He loves reading. He loves math. He has a great recall memory. Like we had a challenge. We were watching some basketball game, and uh, uh, it was uh, Anthony Davis. And it was the other night, and I said – Anthony Davis is uh, seven feet tall. He says, no, he's not. I said, yes, he is. He goes, no, he's not. 
I go, Grayson, what are you talking about, man? I've been watching the Lakers forever. Anthony Davis is seven, at least seven one. And he goes, no, he's not. I'm like, dude, yes, he is. He goes, Alexa, how tall is Anthony Davis? Anthony Davis is 6'11". I'm like, how did this dude know that? So he sits there and he just knows random information. And it's because we let him do him. And he continues to where they thrive as a parent. I cannot emphasize enough as a dad. When you see your kids thriving in an area and taking on a special interest in that area, you should look into that. Like if they like piano or they like playing the violin or the drums, and maybe it's not your get down, but if they show a sparkle or they, sh- they light up when they want to do it, that's when you can join. That's your, that's your signal to embrace that. Call a place where they teach them the violin and say, hey, you want to go see about that? And you never know. You can end up with someone in the, you know, Philharmonic Orchestra or, you know, something crazy. But oftentimes we project, we can project on them that that's what we wanted to do. And it could be something related to our story. Now, our story will hijack us. But then when you project it on the kid, he's like, hey, I don't want to play golf. Like I'm a golfer. I golf every weekend. I can't get him in the golf. He has an awesome swing. But the more I try to push him in the golf, the more he wants to leave the golf clubs in the garage. So I've left it alone. And so I've learned through some things. And then these things that I'm learning as a dad, I'm ultimately realizing that his DNA, his makeup, you know, the girls, how they roll and how they do what they do. I'm dad, no matter what I have to support them. I have to be there for them and let them shine. And they, and that's been the recipe. And when they need support and they need help as dad, you're there for them no matter what. That I'm going to get from my grandmother. And then along the path, I incorporate it all into I'm. So instead of saying I'm a great anything and putting an adjective, I want to leave you with I'm dad. And I just want to be dad. That's it. That's awesome. That's awesome. So the parental version, the dad version of be true to yourself is to say to your kids, you be the best version of you that you can be. You do what makes you happy. And I'm going to be here with the unconditional love along the whole way. I'm going to support you. I'm going to roll with you. You want to, we can talk about it. Don't ever be afraid to come to me embrace them when they're down, when they're up, when they're middle, when the highs and the lows. Don't fluctuate. Stay on point. Stay on cue to just let them know, I'm dad. And when they have a problem or something's going on and they need some support, they'll tell that person, you know, I think I better go talk to my dad. (laughs) I'll get my dad involved. That's great. Well, Sean, this has been really awesome. Thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule and out of all of these competing missions and objectives that you have to spend some of that time with us. It's really valuable and meaningful to me, and I'm sure our listeners found that as well. 
I'll encourage our listeners again to check out The Whiteout. It's an amazing book and an amazing story. As you know, Sean, we always close dadages by giving our guests an opportunity to share a really bad dad joke. And uh, so I'm going to give you the opportunity, Sean, to close (laughs) with your chosen bad dad joke. My wife said I should do lunges to stay in shape. And I said to my wife, that would be a huge step forward. (laughs) I love it. I love it. A huge step forward. (laughs) A huge step forward in the right direction, honey starting immediately, effective immediately. Well, Sean, the opportunity to have you here as a guest on Datages is a huge step forward for us. And listeners, if you've enjoyed what you heard today and would like to help us continue to take huge steps forward, please remember to subscribe to Datages and review it on Spotify or iTunes. It really helps us get our message out to other listeners. And until next time, remember, Dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.